Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll take up recent developments in the politics of Canadian energy policy, including the Alberta government's surprising six-month moratorium on new renewable energy projects, and the federal government's ambitious, arguably impossible plan to make Canada's electricity grid net zero by 2035. The two announcements come from different governments with different ideological perspectives, voting bases, and so on, yet they might actually have more in common than one might think. I'm grateful to speak with David about what that might be and how we ought to think about energy policy more generally. David, thanks as always for joining us. Good to talk to you. In our regular exchange in advance of our conversations, you sent me a brief yet insightful note this week about the quote, hazards of thinking of energy as a cultural issue rather than an economic one, unquote. We'll get into these two big recent energy policy announcements in Canada and how they may conflict with your axiom. But before we do, I want to start by asking, how should we think of energy as an economic issue in your mind? As an economic issue and as an environmental issue, energy is something where there are real trade-offs that are painful and difficult. We need to get to a world in which we don't emit greenhouse gases and stop the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We are someday going to maybe even need to find ways to pull those gases out of the atmosphere. We're going to need to do that without wrecking the world economy and without stopping growth in the developed countries and impoverishing the less developed countries. All of this is going to cost real resources. What is not going on here is a morality play. Or if it's morality, it's only in the most abstract sense. So I, I, we all see these, these doofuses who go into European galleries and throw soup on the paintings. Because what they want to tell the world is that the reason we have the global warming problem, the climate change problem, is because of greedy corporations who are defying good people and lying to everybody, and it's the, a few big corporations' fault. Well, that's not true. The corporations aren't driving the cars. The corporations aren't powering the motorboats. They're not flying the airplanes on, on holidays. They are meeting the needs of people who want to do those things in the most cost-effective way. And because we don't put a cost effectively on the emissions, fossil fuels predominate. That's, and that's not because of bad people, that's because of bad incentives. And so what we need to do is to get to a world of, of better incentives. At the same time, it's also not true, some politicians in many countries try to make it out, that, that we have some right to some ancient way of life that was created in you know, our parents' lifetime, where, you know, that our freedom is somehow impaired if we can't drive to the drive through and pick up a hamburger and eat it in the car on our way to somewhere else. And the idea that, well, that was, that that way of life was the product of one set of price incentives, one, you know, that the roads were free, that the carbon was free, it looked cheap, time, you know, families were organized in a certain way. That That's not like some inalienable human right to eat 
to eat the food in the car while it's rolling. So what we've got are, are these conflicts of moralistic stories getting in the way of the thing we have to do, which is get to a low carbon universe, stabilize the climate and do it without tanking the world economy. Uh, that's a good framework for the, the rest of our conversation. Why don't we start with Alberta? As I mentioned earlier, the province's premier, Daniel Smith, recently announced a six-month moratorium on solar and wind projects. The announcement was a surprise, and for good reason, David. Alberta has been a leader in renewable energy development in recent years. So what goes? Why the sudden change in policy, do you think? If it wasn't about economics, what is it about? Well, the, the explanations don't look true. So the, the explanation is Alberta, as you said, is a major producer of, of wind power. And all the great, all that whole belt from Alberta through the Great Plains of the United States down to Texas, that's, that's the, the winds blow strong. And it's a little difficult to connect them to major power users. But the, there are big cities, especially there are big cities in Alberta, there are big cities in Texas. The argument was made, look, we're going to cancel all these projects because wind power does require gas as slack. And we're somehow going to over overtaxing the system by adding wind capacity without adding gas. And you know, that doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, the, these are two different, you know, the, the two balance each other as you need more um, surge capacity, which is what gas provides. You know, you can you can add that too. The one doesn't get in the way of the other. So what it looks like was that just as a certain kind of unthinking environmentalist thinks that oil companies are wicked or energy companies are wicked. And it's their wickedness that explains our problem. Uh, so there are people in the energy sector who say renewables threaten our way of life and they must be stopped because if we want to keep living the way we've been living all the way back to the halcyon year 1973, uh, we have, to, you know, which is what, what Magna Carta was handed down in 1973, right? Like if we change from how things were in 1973, our whole way of life was that in, in they have the same kind of moralistic response. And. You know, look, this is maybe a defect of, of my kind of politics, and I, I think that of many of the people who watch this video, which is, you know, we think like economists. And we think, you know, uh, you got a problem, put a price on it, uh, find ways to conserve against the problem, find ways to substitute for the problem. It's essentially a technical way of thinking. And it's less exciting than a moralistic way of thinking. It just works, and the other one doesn't work. It does reflect something that's happened within Canadian conservatism in the past several years. It's in large part a reaction to the perceived hostility to the traditional oil and gas sector from the Trudeau government. It's also based on the importance of the sector for jobs and government revenues and so on. But one gets a sense that conservatives have really come to see defending oil and gas as fundamental to their identity and even their place and role in politics. I'm quite supportive of the sector, David, but it's, it's not an ethos. Talk about what's going on. Why have Canadian conservatives come to define themselves so much in relationship to oil and gas? Well, a big part, I think, of what is going on in politics through all the developed world is baby boomer nostalgia. As the boomers are in their 60s, so they're not yet old, old, and but they are no longer young, that they have this idea that whatever was going on in the world when they were between the ages of 16 and 21, that's just the way things should be. And if, and if anything is different, whether it's the music, whether it's the, the way the economy is organized, whether it's what a house should look like, what exists in the world between the, their ages of 16 and 21, that, that, that's forever. You know, I think one of the things that when, when, when people go on about the war on Christmas, one of the things they're capturing is there was this moment when the troops came home from the war. When women left the factories, when there was this effort to reconstitute a normal way of life, and also where the traditional 
violent hatred between Catholics and Protestants <laughs> had abated to the point where you could have this generic, like, post sectarian Christmas that was equally participated in by groups of people before the Depression had not liked each other very much. They were now all one thing. And, and I think a lot of people said, that's the way it always was. That's the way it was from Magna Carta to now. That's the way it always must be. And they didn't, you're just, you're just being nostalgic for your youth and keeping things the way they were when I was young is, is never, is never feasible politics. And it's not good politics because right now there's someone else who's young and who thinks that the way we do things now is normal. And then someday they'll become an old geezer like, like me and, and they'll try to preserve that. So I think a lot, yes, all the things are there, but there's something about how people have made an identity about a certain way to organize society. It was new once it's old now and something else will be new. And the, the, the genius of the thing that makes North American conservatism conservative and not reactionary is its ability to integrate things that are traditional and things that are new, but to, to be open to new. Otherwise, you're just doing the impossible. I mean, you're just, you're, just, you're just trying to halt time and time doesn't halt. I mentioned the Trudeau government, which is perhaps a good segue, because if the right at times seems dogmatic about defending non-renewable energy sources, the left seems similarly dogmatic about getting rid of them. Uh, Ottawa's new electricity regulations last week aim to achieve net zero by 2035, even though several provinces, including Alberta and others, without hydroelectricity, have said that they cannot get there on, the, on that timeline. I exchanged with a smart policy observer in Alberta this week, David, who said to me, the federal government seems prepared to take away reliable and affordable electricity in pursuit of its arbitrary target. What do you think about that? Is the Trudeau government essentially doing the same thing as some conservatives, but just the opposite in terms of turning energy policy into a culture war politics? Well, if you've got a plan to get to net zero in 12 years and it doesn't include nuclear, it's drugs. I'm sorry. It's just if we were today to build a lot of nuclear power plants, 12 years would be time to get them up and going. And then, yeah, net zero electricity production without wrecking the economy. That's very feasible. But if you're not doing that, then it's drugs. And so what are you talking about? And there's another problem, which is, look, you know, it's a great way to get to net zero, import manufactured goods. Because what you do, what we, what we have, what you're doing is exporting the energy. So you, you're, there's as much carbon going into the thing you use. It's just not counting against your local domestic quota. Um, so, and a great part of the progress that the countries of the Western world have appeared to make against carbon since about 2010 has coincided with the surge of emissions in China and India because we're just exporting the carbon production function to other countries. So unless you have a global vision, and that doesn't mean being loosey-goosey and making lots of concessions and saying, you know, because of the opium wars, China gets to emit carbon forever. It means you need a coherent policy with your allies, because China and India are just so big, to constrain them. And that means having carbon tariffs where you say, you know what, we, we did export our manufacturing functions to you and you did produce a lot of carbon. And we let you essentially expend that. We're going to now put a price on it for ourselves and for you, whether you like it or not. But because these countries are so big, it's just meaningless to think about this in a Canadian context. It's barely feasible to think about it in a NAFTA-wide context. I mean, we really need to think, I, I've said, you need to think about a price on carbon that is agreed between North America, the European Union, Britain, and Japan, and Australia, New Zealand, although they're Canadian-sized economies. But EU, EU plus US, 
plus Britain and Japan, and then minor partners as well. And you put a, a agree on a price and put a carbon tariff wall around that block. And then you can talk to India and China and say, you have to change. But we need to be very aware that for India and China meeting the rising demands of their population, there is no way for them to curb carbon without a lot of nuclear power. Because they, they have nowhere to export their production functions to. And they have to air condition, they have to heat, they have to bring people into a modern way of life. And that takes a lot of electricity. Where does that electricity come from, if not from coal, at the scale that India and China need it? Only nuclear. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, The Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. To that point, David, we don't just need to cut emissions within our electricity generation We also need to massively expand our capacity. A a recent public policy forum paper, for instance, estimates that we'll need to double our electricity generation by 2050 to meet demand for electric vehicles, buses, and so on. So how do we move beyond the negative sum way in which these debates have played out to focus more on how do we get to abundant energy? I think the way these things happen is you get these political leaders you know the, the joke. I, I I I know the Jewish version of. It. I'm sure there's there are many other versions of the 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 warring business partners who come to the rabbi looking for a solution, and the rabbi hears one of them out and he hears his case and says, "You know, you're right." And then the other warring partner tells his version of the case, and the rabbi ponders that and says, "You know, sorry, you're right." And and they both, rabbi, you, we can't both be right. And he considers that and says, "You're right, right again." Okay. Well, the essence of political leadership is the ability to say to all these warring factions, you're all right. You're all, you've all got a piece of the truth. And so what we need is we need to get to reduce carbon. We need to expand electricity production. We need to not be on drugs when we think about how we're going to do that. And we need to remember that this is a global, it's global climate change. So it doesn't do anything if Canada becomes net neutral and India and China don't. And they're not willing to play ball on this, so they have to be constrained. And that means working with sufficient partners that you have enough economic weight to make them do things whether they want to or not. And that takes visionary leadership that can speak to a lot of constituencies, but doesn't play, look, what can I say? Provincial politics, they're provincial. So it's it's natural that a provincial politician is going to seize the temptation to win some tiny little fragment of a constituency in one single province. Uh, but the national leaders then have to act like grownups against that. And that means um, not playing their games, by the way, and not letting various kinds of super minor allies like, um, you know, that block pipelines that the government has said it wants to build. I mean, that's, I think, one of the ways that, that the federal government has lost a lot of credibility is it purports to be in favor of things, that it's really not willing to apply muscle to get done. 
because it won't say no to any of its allies. It will say no to its adversaries in Alberta. It won't say no to its allies. Well, you have to say no to your allies, too. Let's wrap up just on the subject of the the politics at the backdrop here. Um, Before we came on air, David, we talked a bit about the powerful political call of the late 1980s and early 1990s that the West wanted in. And of course, Stephen Harper becoming prime minister for a decade was, in effect, uh, the West entering into a, a position of real leadership at the national level. What does this current squabble between Ottawa and the province of Alberta tell us about that ongoing project of incorporating Western perspectives and interests and so on into our national political economy. The energy sector makes it difficult. It's important to remember that Alberta is not all of the West. There is Saskatchewan with its potential uranium industry that is part of the West. There's the extraordinary wind power potential of all of these Western provinces that can be integrated into continental grids that serve because there are big cities in Alberta. There are not so many big cities elsewhere in the Canadian West. But as you improve distribution technologies, I mean, this, this, this power can reach Chicago, it can reach Minneapolis. We need a North America, we need to be thinking in terms of building a North American power grid, truly integrated and being able to switch power from, you know, with, as the technology improves all the way from the solar fields of Northern Mexico, which need to be built, the wind farms of Western Canada, the nuclear power plants that need to be everywhere that's geologically stable, and and then distributing them to where productive functions are done. And we need to then think about all of uniting all of these people in a way to say that North America is going to work with European partners, Britain and Japan, to say the the great climate problem of the future is India and China. They are not going to agree unless constrained, unless unless I don't want to use the word compelled because that's not. That's not feasible. It's not politic. But unless inspired, incentivized, induced, and unless given also shown the menu of charges, of prices that they will have to pay if they don't do it. The crux of your comments today has been that we need to think about the inherent trade-offs between the environment and the economy and energy policy through an economic lens and not the moralistic or cultural one that seems to have have come to be reflected in so much policymaking these days. The Conservative Party of Canada, David, I, I, I happen to know, is in the process of thinking through what a climate policy alternative looks like to the federal governments in real time. I won't ask you to outline a comprehensive policy agenda, but maybe just speak to some of the principles or, or even a framework that Canadian Conservatives ought to be using or thinking about as they aim to produce a climate policy that increasingly appears to be something of a threshold issue. That is to say, a lot of voters may not be voting based on their climate preferences, but they won't consider the rest of your agenda if they're not satisfied that your climate agenda is is credible. The main framework I would say to them, as I would say to any political party, but right now it's the parties of the right that needs to hear this most, is respect voters. Talk to any one person and they can have believe all kinds of crazy, irrational things. They can and they often do. Talk to a hundred and you'll, it'll be a room for crazy and irrational things. But talk to a million. And what you discover is that the collective sense of, of the human species is wiser than any of us individually. And I think one of the ways that a lot of the parties to the right have gotten into trouble on this issue is they let the most inflammatory people and the most crazy Facebook posts and Twitter tweets fool them about where public opinion is when we're and above all where public opinion can be because the job of it's called political leadership and that doesn't mean going on twitter and seeing what 80 agitated people are saying uh it means 
thinking profoundly about where your society needs to go, thinking profoundly about how your principles can serve your society, and then decide, trying to understand how do I bring the people along with me? And they will surprise you, but talk to them like grownups. Like one of the things I said early on in this conversation, a little self-critically, is you know, maybe this is a fault of my politics, that it's you know, too, trying to be too rational and not dealing enough with the emotions. But non-self-critically, I would say people will often surprise you at how, if you talk to them reasonably, how reasonable in the aggregate they will be. And that's where the conservatives, I think, should be. Um, and I think right now there's a lot of the discussion in the conservative party that would be improved if people would just spend less time on social media and that they are letting they are letting a few voices. The founder of the conservative tradition, Edmund Burke, has this wonderful image that he says, if you look at a great field, you will see cows grazing, you will see mighty oaks, but what you will hear is the chirping of insects. And you should not let the chirping of the insects distract you from what is really going on in that field, the mightiness of the oaks, the, the strength of the, of the cattle. That's the biomass of that field. And so it is in the electorate, that there are a lot of people who are not on social media, who are not saying foolish things all the time. And they're there, and they're waiting to, be, they're waiting to hear a, a message that is rational, that addresses their energy concerns, that addresses their economic concerns, that addresses their environmental concerns. They love their kids. And that's what environmental concerns are about, because we talked about the baby boom generation. We're on the way out. The worst of what is coming climatically is not going to affect us personally, but it will affect our children and grandchildren. And because we love them, because most of us love, love them, love, love our own, we are going to listen to politicians who speak not only to our interests, but to those of our children and grandchildren. That's a great message to wrap up today's conversation. David Frum, I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of Hub Dialogues, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. <laughs>